Good morning, brethren. We are going to be back in Genesis this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 41. We'll read our passage, verses 1 through 36, at the outset, and then we'll go back and and look into into in more detail. Chapter 41, starting in verse 1. Then it came to pass, at the end of two full years, that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came out up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second time, and suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them, and the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed, it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody In the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, we each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass... Just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And (coughs) And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. When they had eaten them up, No one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. So I awoke. Also, I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. Then behold, seven heads withered, thin and blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. 
The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because this thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this, and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming, and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh, and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. So chapter 41 that we've just read begins where chapter 40 left off, which left Joseph in prison after he had interpreted the chief butler and baker's dreams. And if you remember from chapter 40, verse 20, it was Pharaoh's birthday and he made a feast for all his servants and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and the chief baker and he restored the chief butler to his butlership and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted. And Joseph had asked the chief butler to remember him, but he forgot. He said in verse 14, But remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh, and get me out of this house. For indeed I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and also I have done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon. So Joseph maintains his innocence, as we see in his plea to the chief butler, but continues to faithfully serve in the house of the captain of the guard. We see in chapter 39 that the Lord was with Joseph and prospered him, even there in that prison. So the two years, so these two full years pass after the interpretation of the chief butler and baker. And Pharaoh has this dream two years later. Now it's, it's noteworthy that God has at different times, he's given dreams and visions to his people, but we see that sometimes he gives dreams to Gentiles, Gentile rulers like this Pharaoh. <clears throat> uh, even before this account, we see we saw back in Genesis 20 where God visited Abimelech. Uh, that was most likely a, a, a title rather than name, just like Pharaoh. And God visited Abimelech in a dream with regards to Abraham's wife. In Matthew 27, we see that Pilate's wife had a dream, or, or more likely a nightmare, some, some kind of nightmare about the circumstances around Jesus' trial. And then we have Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. And there's, in fact, a, a number of interesting parallels between this passage with Pharaoh and Joseph and the passage in Daniel 2 with Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. You have Pharaoh's spirit was troubled in the dream, and then Nebuchadnezzar's spirit was so troubled that sleep left him, it says. 
Pharaoh called for all the magicians and the wise men. Nebuchadnezzar called for all the magicians and, and the astrologers and the sorcerers, Chaldeans. Uh, but, but neither groups could interpret the dream. Joseph interprets the dream and he acknowledges God. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer. Daniel interprets the dream and acknowledges God. There's that famous line in chapter Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Joseph also says in verse 25, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Pharaoh acknowledges God also. <clears throat> he says, inasmuch as God has shown you all this, Nebuchadnezzar recognized or acknowledged God Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets. Pharaoh sets Joseph up as the ruler of the land of Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar sets Daniel as ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator of all the wise men. Joseph is given a foreign name. Daniel is given a foreign name. Now, we don't want to get too much into the names because that's, that's more for next uh, time. But Joseph's foreign name, which I'm going to butcher this, Zephnathpaniah. It's difficult to translate, um, but it's loosely translated as the man to whom mysteries are revealed, something to that effect. And Daniel's foreign name, Belteshazzar, Shazar means one who lays up treasures in secret. So there's all these parallels, as you can see. And it speaks to the way God reveals himself and has revealed himself in the past um, <clears throat> and has revealed his purpose and what he's going to do through his people. So now we'll... We'll, we'll look at Pharaoh's dream. We'll look at the setting of the dream. We'll look at the summoning of Joseph. And we'll look at the significance of the dream. So the setting. So Pharaoh dreams. And he's in a particular place. He's, he stood by the river. This is most likely referring to the Nile River. And in other translations, it does say Nile. <clears throat> and as we know, the Nile, which flows approximately 4,000 miles from the interior of Africa and empties into the Mediterranean. Is it, extremely, it is extremely important to Egyptian culture. Every year, every year the, the Nile floods and rich deposits are spread about a kilometer on either side of the Nile River. And there's a lot of layers of rich soil that just get concentrated. And it's quite a contrast between the Nile area and the desert that surrounds it and so much so that you can see that from space and the river was a source of pharaoh's power and it was a source of life for the egyptians and we we see that in in exodus 7 21 uh, it was a source of fish a source of drinking water for the egyptians and so obviously with the rich soil and, and everything surrounding that it was incredibly important for agriculture and husbandry and, and we see that in the text. We see there came up out of the river seven cows, fine looking and fat. So we know Egyptians kept cattle. And the cattle were known at times to submerge themselves in the river to relieve themselves of the heat and the pestering insects. And so they came up out of the river. And the cattle fed in the meadow, it says in verse 2. The literal words there is fed among the reeds. And this is noteworthy because the, the Hebrew word aku, or reeds, is an Egyptian loan word. Now, a loan word is a word that is borrowed from a foreign language. 
uh, kind of as is, with not too much modification to it. For example, uh, the, the word sushi is of Japanese is of Japanese origin. It's a Japanese word, but we've borrowed that and we've taken that and and incorporated it into our every everyday English vernacular. At least when referring to rice prepared with a type of vinegar and rolled with ingredients. So our language is filled with all kinds of loanwords from other languages like German, English, or German, Spanish, Italian. And it's because of all the influence of all these different cultures that we've, we've taken all these loanwords and adopted all these words. Well, it was the same way in the ancient Near East. And the Hebrew language was no exception. It borrowed a number of words from the Egyptians, which should come as no surprise because the Hebrews lived as slaves in Egypt for quite some time. And it comes through in the text, um, <clears throat> which is not a surprise because the writer, <laughs> as we know, was Moses. So as, as Thomas Lambden notes in his paper on Egyptian loan words in the Old Testament, this word for reeds here, aku, it referred originally to the land inundated by the Nile River, as I said before. But in later times, it came to mean just pasture land. So that's probably why it's translated meadow there. The, f- the final ooh of the Hebrew word points to a very early borrowing, possibly in the Old Kingdom. Okay, so why, why bring all this up? Well, <clears throat> this is a real story. This is not made up. This is not fiction. And, and of course, we, we know that. This is God's word, after all. Um, but it, it's more than just... You know, this narrative is more than dry, dusty history. Right? It's very real. And and uh, this is the Sunday School Hour, so hopefully, for those of you who love history and, and language, maybe there's a bit more you can connect with, possibly, perhaps. So, one final note on this. This English word is found in one other place, in Job 8.11, where it says, Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the reeds, and there's that word, Flourish without water. Now, we don't know for certain who the author of Job was. But based on the use of this word and other loan words, it indicates that the, the writer may have been an early Hebrew, uh, maybe not too far removed from the events in Exodus. So, so up until now, we have common features. We have the river. We have the Nile. We have these cows. We have them feeding in the pasture, in the meadow. But then we see seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, that come up out of the river, and they just devour these fat cows. And as Pharaoh later recounts the dream in verse to Joseph in verse 21, no one would have known that they had even eaten them, for they were just as ugly as the beginning. So you can just imagine these, these cows, the emaciated, ugly-looking, thin cows, just, just coming out and devouring these fine-looking cows, and leaving no sign that they had a huge, beefy meal. I mean, one cow or steer can feed a family for months. But there was no evidence that these thin cows had been filled or satiated. Then Pharaoh dreams again, and seven heads of grain come up on one stock, plump and good. Now, we're seeing this number seven. The number seven we know in scripture, represents uh, completeness or perfection. The grain here that's mentioned may have been uh, wheat or barley. The river isn't mentioned explicitly in, in this second dream. 
But again, we see the agricultural dependence on the Nile represented in this dream. And the reference to the single stock symbolizes exceptional abundance. And then Pharaoh sees seven thin heads blighted by the east wind spring up after them. The east wind described in scripture and the east wind shows up quite often and it was associated with divine judgment and was a, it was actually a common event in the harsh arid desert conditions of the ancient Near East. And for example, in Exodus 10, the east wind brings the plague of locusts to Egypt. The east wind is mentioned in the minor prophets such as Hosea and Jonah. And also in the major prophets, the east wind is mentioned. For example, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 19 verse 12, it says, But she was plucked up in fury. She was cast down to the ground, and the east wind dried her fruit. Her strong branches were broken and withered. The fire consumed them. And now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land. So the east wind shows up quite, quite often in scripture. And in our text was most likely the Egyptian Kamasin, which was a very dry and hot wind that originated in the Sahara Desert. And the heat and the airborne sand would just completely ravage plant life, especially vulnerable crops. The word blighted here has the idea of the grain just being scorched. I think in the King James it says blasted by the east wind. So it's, it's scorched by this intense hot wind. Again, we see a reference to this in Jonah chapter 4 where God prepares a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. So this is the imagery that Pharaoh is presented with. In this dream, he sees these heads of grain that just look like they have been exposed to this harsh, intense wind. And then these these grain have been just ravaged. They go and devour these seven plump and full heads of grain. So the, the imagery in these dreams is really cemented in the reality of Egyptian life and Egyptian culture. And so I, I, I describe this and point all this out just to say that to Pharaoh, these dreams aren't just abstract or, or fanciful. I mean, these are real and these, these dreams disturb him. And for various reasons, one doesn't need to know the precise interpretation of the dream to know this is not, this is not a good thing that's, that's going on in these dreams. That the thin and the emaciated consuming and devouring, the, the fine, the plump and good. So they don't, foretell anything good, even if you don't know the interpretation. But also, in Bruce Waltke's commentary, he notes that the Pharaoh could be troubled because he is likely attributing the bountiful harvests reaped during his reign with his good relationship to the grain god, Osiris. One Pharaoh reportedly said, I produced the grain because I was beloved by the grain god. No one was hungry in my years, end quote. The pharaohs were 
revered as deity and they had relationships with their gods. And so this dream would have been really troubling and foretelling something perhaps with his relationship there with those gods. So verse 8 says, Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all his wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. <clears throat> I can just imagine these these magicians and wise men not, not even wanting to attempt an explanation. Again, again, these dreams, you, you just tell on the surface, they're, they're not foretelling anything good. There's nothing good happening. And, and not stated, it's not stated in the text, but they may have attempted an interpretation. But again, the, even if they had, these magicians were very limited in what they could do. The gods that they ascribed to and looked to for the source of their power, they were false gods. They really had no power compared to the one true God. And we see that in Exodus, in the plagues, right? We see they've tried to replicate what Moses and Aaron are doing and ultimately fail. So that's the setting. That's the setting of the dream. So now we come to the summoning of Joseph. So these magicians, these wise men, they cannot interpret this dream. And the chief butler, he sees this. And he realizes He's forgotten something. He's forgotten someone. In verse 9, Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker. We each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. So he relays this to Pharaoh, something that he was asked to do two years previous. But now he remembers, and he admits this to Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh sends and calls Joseph. Now, the chief butler likely... This is not to excuse him, but he likely forgot because he was probably consumed with all the duties surrounding his restoration to butlership. It says in chapter 40, verse 21, that he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. So his position was one of immense trust. He was responsible for the cup from which the Pharaoh would drink, and his responsibilities likely included tasting or testing the drinks before serving them to Pharaoh to make sure they were safe, that they were good, uh, you know, of suitable quality for for royalty. And so we saw in chapter 40, verse 11, that he took grapes and he pressed them into Pharaoh's cup. So the chief butler had direct access to Pharaoh. He had Pharaoh's ear. And of course, Joseph knows this, and, and that's why he asked him to remember him. And to plead with Pharaoh on his behalf. <clears throat> and so we can we can read into the the passage a little bit and just imagine the chief butler there by Pharaoh's side as as all the magicians and wise men are are attempting perhaps to interpret the dream and failing to do so. And so he remembers. And the chief butler says <clears throat> that he remembered his faults. In not telling Pharaoh beforehand, in, in a way, he has done a, a disservice to both Pharaoh and Joseph. And 
again, as humans, we are, we are quite forgetful. We, being forgetful is, is part of who we are. It's, it's our, you know, we're finite and we're not perfect and we forget things easily. And I'm so thankful that God is not like us. He does not forget. Uh, now the scriptures often talk about God remembering. And of course we know this is not the same as us remembering. You know, when we forget, I mean, it's, it's completely gone at least for a short time, until we remember. But with God, his remembering, when the scriptures speak of God remembered Noah, he remembered Abraham, he remembered Sarah, and many others. This is linked to his covenant faithfulness to his people. And so there's a there's an active expression to his remembrance. And here, though it doesn't state it, Explicitly, God remembers Joseph there in the dungeon. Now we know God was with him. It says the Lord was with Joseph. And so, though he had seemed to be forgotten from human vantage point, we know that God was orchestrating everything. I mean, who, who, who was it that gave Pharaoh the dream? Right? It was God. And so God was sovereignly orchestrating all these events throughout the life of Joseph. To eventually, as we'll see soon, to exonerate Joseph. And this is all done in his perfect timing. And we know Joseph understood this. Maybe not to quite the degree early on, but we saw, we see in, in chapter 50 later, <clears throat> that famous line, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about at this day to save many people alive. So Joseph could see, and even at this point, Joseph could see God's sovereign hand. And yet at the same time, he wasn't, he wasn't sitting around. He wasn't inactive. He was actively working faithfully where God had him. Whether it was in Potiphar's house. Whether it was in the house of the captain of the guard. He was faithful. And the Lord prospered him. And he showed concern. He showed concern for the Egyptians. He cared for the officers of Pharaoh. Right? We saw that he he looked at them, saw that they were sad, and he interpreted their dreams. <clears throat> and so Joseph is an example to us of how to be faithfully busy about what we are called to, even while we're waiting upon the Lord for something, an answer to a prayer or you know something that is heavy upon our minds and hearts that we are waiting upon the Lord for. We don't just sit idly by. We still remain busy, um, <clears throat> walking as we ought to walk. And obeying in obedience to to our Lord. So, but it is our human nature. I mean, we are very easily tied to our to our own timing. I mean, we in our everyday experience, we we time. Some of us are are <laughs> we're planners, and, and we time things in a certain way. And when something throws a wrench into that, we get all out of sorts. And I'm speaking from experience. <laughs> so we easily rely on our own timing. And and often our expectations can create a, a standard that isn't that isn't true. Right? God has his own timing and we we need to be <clears throat> mindful of that. Our expectations need to be calibrated by what God has revealed to us and how God has revealed uh to us about himself and about what he has planned for us. So again, so again, notice that even the chief 
Butler's forgetfulness was part of God's plan. If the chief butler had mentioned this to Pharaoh earlier, Joseph may not have been delivered. He may have, he may have gone back to the land of the Hebrews. But then the Hebrews and the Egyptians would have been ravaged by this coming famine. So again, all this is being worked out by God's sovereign hand. And so after having these troubling dreams, the Pharaoh, he's, he's seeking an answer. He must have an answer. These wise men, these magicians, they're not, they're not helping. They're not interpreting. And so he trusts the word of his chief butler, and he sends for Joseph. And he says they brought him quickly. They brought him quickly out of the dungeon. There was no time to waste. Now notice, notice Joseph's response. Again, it would have been easy to grow bitter, languishing those two years, left in that dungeon after helping someone, especially someone who had the ear of Pharaoh. And we can imagine him waiting day after day, you know, praying to the Lord, trusting him, but praying for deliverance, thinking, okay, this is the day the chief butler is going to mention me to Pharaoh. But he waited, he had to wait two full years. You know, and so when he's, when he's finally summoned, you know, he could have been, what, what took you so long? But, again, I don't believe Joseph was trusting in the chief butler or his memory. And I think that's apparent in the text. We see, we see Joseph's attitude in the text. He shaved. He changed his clothing and he came to Pharaoh. Now, Asiatics, as the Egyptians would have called those living east of Egypt, including the, the Hebrews, uh, they, they typically wore beards. And Joseph probably grew his out uh, during his time in prison. Egyptians were usually clean-shaven for hygienic reasons. And, and Joseph, of course, he's been in Egypt now for 13 years. Uh, he knew this and he knew how to present himself uh, before the Pharaoh in an appropriate way. So he shaved and he changed into appropriate attire to properly present himself before the Pharaoh. He did this out of respect Respect for Pharaoh, respect for the the customs of the day. So even though he had been imprisoned unjustly, we don't see Joseph bringing that up, looking for vindication or upset with with the chief butler. He comes out respectfully and he stands before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. Notice again that Joseph, he doesn't take credit for this. And that, that could have been tempting. Again, he's, he's been waiting two full years. That was an opportunity to, you know, to take credit and to exalt himself. But as he has done before, he rises to the occasion and he turns the attention away from himself and he turns the attention to God. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. This, this word here is Elohim. The supreme, mighty creator of the heavens and the earth, Elohim, will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Now, Joseph may have read between the lines a little bit in this situation. Perhaps he was reading Pharaoh's countenance. But these these words address Pharaoh's troubled spirit regarding the dream, an answer of peace, reassuring the Pharaoh that God had given him this dream for a reason, as he's now going to explain with the interpretation. So we come to we have the setting of the dream. We had the <clears throat> summoning of Joseph. Now we come to the significance of Pharaoh's dream. So Pharaoh relays his dream again 
to, to Joseph and describes what he saw. And we won't we won't go over it again. <clears throat> but we now come to the interpretation. Then Joseph in verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. It's one dream. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice, because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Who else had a dream repeated twice? You remember Joseph. He dreamed about his brother's sheaves bowing down to his sheath. And then the sun and the moon and eleven stars bowing down to him. This thing was also established by God. And God will shortly bring it to pass, as we'll see in the next few chapters. So just as Joseph's dreams were one, Pharaoh's dreams were one. Seven years of plenty would be followed by seven years of extreme famine. Just as the thin and gaunt cows ate up the fat cows with no evidence that they had been filled, so the famine would be so severe that no one would even remember the good years. Now, as Joseph concludes the interpretation, at this point in time, he doesn't know what the outcome is going to be for himself. Um, perhaps God revealed that to him, but, but for all he knew, he, he may simply have just been returned to the house of the captain of the guard. And maybe Pharaoh would elevate him to a position of wise men. Of course, we, we know what happens. <laughs> but I, I say all that to say, despite the injustice shown to Joseph and being a foreigner in a foreign land, not, not as a tourist, he was a slave, he still shows concern. As I mentioned earlier, he he asked the chief butler and baker, why are you sad? Right? He saw their countenance. He was concerned for them. He interpreted their dreams. And here he shows concern for the Egyptians, first by offering counsel and doing so, we see in verse 36, that the land may not perish during the famine. So his attitude wasn't one of, okay, I, I, I've given you the information, Pharaoh, you just you do what you will. You wash my hands of this. You know, he shows concern <clears throat> for the people. And isn't there an application to us there? I mean, we, we are foreigners. We are, our, our citizenship is in heaven. But we don't become so heavenly minded that we don't show concern for things happening here on earth and for the people. So in conclusion, we will look at the final point, one final point, the sound counsel given by Joseph. In verse 33, Joseph says, Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. Now this is interesting. Remember, remember Pharaoh has just gathered all the magicians, all the wise men. It says in verse 8, he called for all 
priestess, all the magicians and all its wise men, probably called them from every corner of the land to come and help him interpret this dream. So in a roundabout way, Joseph is subtly pointing out to Pharaoh that he's just learning he has no wise men, at least not for this. No one could interpret the dream, much less provide counsel on how to respond to it. So let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the fruit of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh. And let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt that the land may not perish during the famine. So notice that Joseph humbly and respectfully gives this advice. Let Pharaoh select. Let Pharaoh do this under the authority of Pharaoh. So even as Joseph gives this counsel, he is submitting to the ruling authority of Pharaoh. And this is truly wise counsel. And we'll see this play out in the next few chapters. First, Joseph advised Pharaoh that 20% 20% of the plentiful bounty each year is to be saved for the coming famine. And then that the food is to be kept in the cities for as a reserve. I've read people who have taken this 20% idea and they've applied it in the financial sense, saying you need to set aside 20% of your income as savings. And that's a good idea, but... It's very difficult for the average person to do that larger percentage, especially at lower incomes. And so I think if one is to try to make a, a practical application from <clears throat> from this council, I believe it would be closer to the text to say, when you come into extra money, times of plenty, you set aside at least 20% of that extra into savings, so it's there to draw from during the harder times when... <clears throat> when you're under financial stress. <clears throat> but this counsel that Joseph gives, I mean, in general, it certainly can be applied uh, in a number of different ways. I mean, in times of plenty, whatever that plenty is, whether it's in a financial sense, whether it's money or whether it's time or just anything, um, that, this counsel can be applied. I mean, we are given an exhortation in Proverbs 6, of course, we're familiar with this, for the, the ant who provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest, right? <clears throat> And we all we all don't live as farmers, you know, these days. But right, they'd, they'd set aside certain foods like potatoes, things that would keep during the winter. They'd harvest those things in the summertime and keep them for the winter. So anytime we experience plenty, uh, it could be a good rule of thumb to set aside for those times when we experience lack. And there's less income, less time for things. <clears throat> okay, one <clears throat> one final thought before we close. Uh, Pharaoh's dream was not just a novelty or a nice story to tell, but but this was an important part of God's purpose and sovereign plan to save his people. And God used this revelation, and he used Joseph as part of his plan. And we, we who are saints of God, we're not outside of God's sovereign hand, of course. So wherever wherever we are in our walk, whether a high place or low place, Know that God has not forgotten you. He remembers you. And he will never leave you or forsake you. We are secure in Christ.
And he is working in us and through us to accomplish his purposes. We are, we are instruments in his hand. And we have to remember that his timing is perfect. And, you know, it, it's hard to wait. <laughs> it's at times hard to wait upon the Lord. But, again, whatever God does in our lives is right and good. And he will accomplish his purpose. And so, may we be busy about his work as we wait upon him and trust him. Let's pray.